It's time for another season of The Palmetto Porch, an original podcast from Discover South Carolina. I'm Devin Whitmire. Join me as I get to the heart of what makes South Carolina such a great place to visit by speaking to the locals who make it so special. Premiering December 5th, find The Palmetto Porch wherever you get your podcasts. And for more information about our show, visit scpalmettoporch.com. My name's Stuart Wright, and today I've got with me screenwriter, director, and author, Mark Blake. Good morning, Mark. Good morning, Stuart. Now, the reason we've come together is for your excellent book that you co-wrote with Sarah Bailey, which is called Writing the Horror Movie. Yes. So, before we go into any detail about what we're going to cover in the podcast, do you want to tell us how that book came about? What, what instigated you and Sarah to, to sort of take that task on? Sure. I got um, divorced about 10 years ago, and that uh, after a divorce, you get quite interested in horror for some strange reason. Um, I'd already, I'd actually always been interested in horror, but um, I had plenty of time on my hands at that point. And, um, and I'd actually been teaching a horror course at City University. Um, some have denied the horror course, of course, but this is a horror course. And it's the first gag of the day. Um, but I was uh, I was teaching this course at City University, and, and to, to be honest with you, I was teaching it kind of uh, one step ahead of, of the students. You know, each week I, I was a huge fan of horror, but but I was sort of you know looking into it myself as I was doing it. Um, subsequently, many of the many of the students have become close friends, and uh, and went to the, actually the wedding of, of one of them last Saturday. Um, yeah, it was pretty uh, incredible. But um, <coughs> so I was. Um, you know, studying it and, and beginning to, as as many uh, horror fans do, buy an immense amount of DVDs of horror, and so I got to a point where I'd really sort of covered more or less everything. And so I'd been writing for Bloomsbury before. Uh, I'd done a book called How Not to Write Sitcom because that's another area in which I work, um, which had worked very well. And they, and they were looking for other sort of books. They were looking to sort of relaunch their range. And so my then uh, later partner and I, Sarah. Uh, offered the idea of writing the horror movie and to sort of break it down into the tropes, which is what we did. Fantastic. And I mean, and, and I think the interesting thing from, from a reader's point of view is what, although the, the book is called Writing the Horror Movie, what you've not written is a process to write in a horror movie. There's, there's, a, there's, a, there's another book that I've got called, just simply called Horror Screenwriting. Yeah. Which sort of walks you through writing a horror film in a sense almost like offering you the recipe. And I think what's great about your book is that you you talk around what makes a good horror movie, allowing me, the author, and anybody else who's reading your book to go away with that thought as fuel, not mm. the rules to making a horror You're not saying this is how to make a horror film. You're saying these are what make yeah. horror films good. 
Exactly. These in terms of the genre itself, because I mean, I teach screenwriting as well. And I mean, in terms of a screenplay, one can always be fairly prescriptive. You've got to have the three act structure. You've got to have the certain beats. You've got to have certain things happening as and where they do. And likewise, in horror, and particularly, say, the slasher movie, you, you're going to be pretty sure that you've got a fair formula there, starting with Halloween and going all the way through to All the Boys Love Mandy Lane. And, and, and those slashes are, or were particularly formulaic because of the, the setup in the 80s with, you know, all, all of those ones, but then reinvented, reinvented by Scream and the like, the like, the like. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, I felt that uh, you, you can't be too prescriptive. There are certainly rules and tropes for each subgenre, um, and that's what you need to understand. And once you've got the hang of that, um, that then you're off. Early on in the book, once, once you've sort of, talked about sort of what what horror is and what horror isn't so to speak you then you then dive into what 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 are the five but what you deem the five basic tropes of of horror and the horror experience because i think that's i think that's the important thing isn't it i mean is, is mm. the, the horror is it, it be, i mean genre generally isn't it i suppose there's an element of experiential, isn't there? That, that you you you're, you go into it to to get something out of it, not just simply the story. You're going for the visceral as well as the emotional. Yeah, I think there always has to be a reaction. I think that's why I like the two the two poles of comedy and horror. Is that you know if it, if it's if it's funny, you've got to laugh. If you're going to go and see a comedy, you've got to laugh. And it's horror, you've got to be scared on on deep some deep kind of, of level. And I, that also with with horror is that. You go there as a group experience. I mean, obviously, there is fewer and fewer people going to the cinema nowadays, you know, for that group experience. I mean, I think the last time I did it recently would have been Babadook or The Witch or before that Paranormal Activity, um, putting aside Fright Fest, obviously. But, you know, that communal experience is what you kind of need with horror. And so, you know, that, that's it's very visceral, as you say, yeah. So you've, you, you've identified in, in the book five basic tropes, and they are... Unease, dread, terror, horror, and disgust. Now, through the gauze of those, and then through the examples that you've given me in advance, which are Don't Look Now from 1973, Kill List from 2011, Eden Lake from 2008, Hellraiser 1987, and Whistle and I'll Come to You, which I think is 68, 69, the original, but there's also a remake from 2010. Um, the MR James story. Yep. Using those examples, the hope is through this podcast that we we sort of illustrate those five basic tropes. So, uh, do you want to? I don't know how you want to start. You're uh, you sort of addressing the. I certainly kick off with with unease, and I have a lovely pile of DVDs in front of me uh, as reference. First of all, I'm going to name check a guy, Stephen Cleary. Uh, whose lectures I went to uh, way back in the early 2000s. And, and really, the, the first couple, many of these tropes, he was sort of expounding upon these tropes himself, Stephen Cleary, so I want to give him a name check, a shout-out, as the young people would have it. Um, but, you know, uh, uh, it, it was, I was working on his, his theories, and, and I added uh, disgust to that myself. But so going to unease is that... First of all, I have to say that horror has got to be about the unknown. It's got to be about, you know, if it's a monster, if it's a, a paranormal idea, if it's a ghost, if it's whatever, it deals fundamentally with the unknown to us. You cannot configure it. This is the important thing. It's, it's got to be something we, we cannot understand. So therefore, you've got to be holding off the reveal of the monster 
whatever it is for as long as you possibly can. Um, from the moment on when you reveal the monster, then, then you know, it's a whole different game. And then we get into viscera and gore and the like. So that's my preamble. Um, but going into Don't Look Now, we've got Nick Roeg, who's directed a fantastic film with uh, Julie Christie and Donald Sutherland. And, you know, even though this is a wonderful film um, f about... Um, written, obviously from a short story by Daphne du Maurier, a wonderful film about you know, a, a couple who are in mourning, a couple who are mourning their lost child, a couple who are trying to get it back by going to Venice, you know, and, and, and all the rumours about, you know, did they, didn't they actually make love and all of that really, you know, uh, are fascinating. But the very opening scene is a wonderful scene, of, see, uh, a series of images of unease, because we open with... Uh, the pair having a Sunday lunch, or is it a Sunday lunch? We're not quite sure. They seem to live in a fairly idyllic cottage. They may, may have rented it, it may be theirs, and there's a pond. And we see this series of images of their daughter. This obviously, so it's a flashback. And we, we have a lot of disjointed imagery. We've got a white horse running across the background. We have the girl pulls uh, the, um, the cord on an action man figure. And instead of it having a, a male voice, it has a, a female voice. Um, there's a boy, her brother, presumably running around on his bike. Um, he, gets, he drives over a pane of glass, which, which shatters. So what's that doing there? And he tries to get the, uh, I think, the, gets the, uh, the, 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 the it's a nail out of the tyre, you know, using some pliers. At the same time, we're, we're cross-cutting with this, with this Sunday lunch with Julie Christian Donald Sutherland, and he is working on his slides for his lecture. Uh, and you have slightly ominous uh, music going on, and you see that uh, he pricks his finger, and you see a trail of blood on an image in a church. And, and of course, this hint of this little red-hooded figure sitting there in a pew. Um, there are books on their side area and their table referring to the existence of things or the non-existent things. Um, and then outside, the little girl, you know, loses her ball and, and then goes towards the pond to retrieve it. Um, and then we have this sense of, of real unease that does she sense what's going on? Does, does he sense what's going on? Suddenly it's him because, of course, ultimately, spoiler alert, it's he who is uh, the, the man with the gift of the premonitions. And... And something, something draws him outside, draws him to the pond. And, and the great thing is he uses this dissonant music, he uses an absence of music. And particularly, there's a sense there of, of this complete silence. Uh, I think he's already screaming, as I remember, but silently screaming as he hits the water. And you hear nothing. And of course, I think this is wonderfully evocative of the idea that nature knows when something's wrong. You know, um, because if you've ever been sort of in the woods and the forest, you know, and something's wrong, the birds go quiet. You know, there's actually silence in nature. And that's the weirdest thing, total silence. And, and when you know it's all wrong. Um, a bit like in uh, Stephen King's uh, Dreamcatcher, if you've seen that one, um, in, in which suddenly all the animals run past their cabin. You know, and you know, well, something's seriously wrong. Anyway, so uh, Donald Sutherland, he goes into the pond and then sort of, you know, grabs her and you have this horrible, horrible scream. And all this is pre-credits. But what you have is this terrible sense of unease that there's something wrong. And it's, it, I mean, I've, 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 I've recently read the screenplay for Don't Look Now. Ah. And it's interesting because on the page it does say her brother, you know. Mm. It does say, it is saying it's Sunday lunch and things like that. Those things that, I mean, obviously it's, it's, these, these, are, these are fairly obvious stuff, but they're, they're, all, they're, all, they're all very, very um, 
they're overly clipped, aren't they? These moments, so you can't. Everything's abrupt. Yes. Which is which is how you get the sense that something <laughs> is gonna go wrong. Yeah, I mean, he also went into you know the man. He later on did the man who fell to earth, and there's a similar thing there. He's a very unique filmmaker um, because you know he's not using the sort of visual grammar. Uh, that most other filmmakers would use. Um, obviously, it's a period of its time. It's seventy-one or seventy-two, I think. Um, and and it, and it, as you say, if you look in the screenplay, it says a Sunday lunch. But but it seems to flip forwards and backwards in time, whether they've just eaten or they haven't. Um, what it is, I think, is 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 just that sense which horror does best of that. Uh, it's like when you're getting ill. It's like you know you're getting a cold. Uh, let's say you're coming home and suddenly you've got that feeling of, oh, you know, oh, I, I know there's something wrong. I can't quite tell what it is yet, but oh, I don't feel right. Mm. And I think that's a beautiful introduction to a horror. Um, it, it could be, um, gosh, uh, Laurie in um, Halloween. You know, she doesn't really get that sense for a long time. But of course, John Carpenter flags it up by the music, you know. You know, the guy's already walking around the town. We've got some superhero position that and she's not seeing it. But then when she does begin to see it, you know, we join her in unease. And of course, always during unease, we are completely with the character. You know, we have to identify strongly. Mm. Mm. Is it for your mind that the unease is the, is, is the first building block of all horror or can it be omitted to... to... Uh, it, it can be very quick. I, I think, um, you know, a, a lot of, let's say, bigger mainstream American horrors would go straight in with a big sort of a set piece like a Final Destination franchise or Saw, so you're straight in because you know that you're going to get a bunch of gore. So, so you do that. But once you're over that teaser, as it were, then you do need to do that within the first act. So you, you've, got to, you've got to flag up that something is unusual. Um, another example will be Rosemary's Baby. You know, they move into the apartment, everything's la-la-la, happy-happy. He meets the neighbours, you know, um, she's going to get pregnant, she has a test. But it's a very, very slow build in that one. Unease is dragged out for, gosh, nearly half an hour, I think. And it's interesting because, because in, 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 I guess in screenwriting terms, the, 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 the thing is that Act One is meant to be um, sort of showing life as normal before it changes into this second act where we can never go back to the first act. But yes. in, in terms, horror is, is a bit more like, a, should feel more like a stick of dynamite's burning, but you don't quite know what it is, but you sense that, that something mm. needs to go bang. That's a very nice analogy, the stick of dynamite, but I would put that into dread. Okay. Yeah. So that's a, is, that, is that a segue? That is a segue, that is. <laughs> so the second trope that you've, you've, uh, you've identified in the book is dread. So do you want to tell yeah. us, talk us through an example of, of how that works? I think we'll, we'll go with Eden Lake because, you know, I want to keep this, uh, I want to keep this British um, in that way. Um, happy couple go camping by a lake. Uh, they're going to get... Um, going to get engaged. Some some kids turn up. They they kind of ruin it with their their nasty um, you know their noise and their dog. Um, there's a there's a bit of a standoff, you know, and the kids seem to go away. And then you know our couple go to bed and sleep the night. And then the next morning, and they go out and they go swimming. And then suddenly, you know, it starts to get very very wrong. Um, I think. Uh, it's James Watkins directed this movie, and I saw it at um, Fright Fest, uh, its premiere, and, and it was absolutely superb. I mean, it, it was right bang on the hoodie horror. You know, it was the first of those hoodie horrors, you know, of, I think 2007, 8, I get my dates badly wrong. But um, 
Dread is a sense of there is something coming and we now have an idea what it is. We don't know what it is, but it is coming. So as you said, the stick of dynamite, that's brilliant. Because if you see the stick of dynamite, um, you, you know it's going to blow. Um, um, you know, Hitchcock always did the, the sort of the ticking clock or the ticking bomb, but quite often that was that you didn't know, you didn't, well, the audience knew, but the characters didn't know their ticking clock was in the room. In this case, we do know. Dread is the sense of if you're walking home and an ambulance passes you, then another one, and then a police, and you look, and you look down the road towards your house, and you can see smoke. Yeah. And that's dread. It's there's something coming, and oh god, you know. Um, so in Eden Lake, we get that sort of slightly further on, you know, because we've got that big preamble. But it is like uh, these guys are bad, you know, and these guys are going to do us uh, are going to do us terrible things uh, in that way. Um, another one I might refer to is Night of the Demon. Was that in my list? No, no, but go on. That's that's very, um, that's very throwing in the throwing in the classic Carswell. It's a wonderful opening because that's that's uh, you know the man goes to Carswell and begs for him to take back the rune, uh, but he doesn't. Of course, we see the demon, um, but then we have the American guy played by Donna Andrew, and then then he comes in and he starts to sort of go and talk to uh, to, to Carswell as well. But again, that builds beautifully. So they have a wonderful scene in which he interviews him at his sort of palatial palace. And he performs his first act of, of black magic in a very Alistair Crowley type way. And then you get this real sense that you've been given the rune, <laughs> you've been given the slip of paper, and your number's on it. So that is, to my mind, the sense of, the sense of dread. We still can't configure the, the, the monster. Um, it's pro- it may have been described, we may have an idea, but it, it is coming. Yeah, because in, 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 in Eden Lake, what's really interesting is, and, and, and I, 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 see, I see where you go with the, the Hitchcock theory, is we don't, the, the characters don't see the bomb that's going to explode. We, we are dreading it happening. Whereas, yeah. quite clearly, Fassbender's character knows these are bad people, but yeah. that also puts us, the audience, at the same place as Fassbender. So, yeah. so in a way, it's that classic fork in the road for, for a horror film, which is, if we just go home, then nothing bad happens. Yes. We're dreading him deciding to go full-on confrontation because because we already know, or we can ascertain, without comprehending the whole of the horror that's going to follow, mm. that he's going to at least get a busted nose. You know, we, we, we know the dog will bite him and he'll get a busted nose. So why would you want to confront them? Why not just go home? You're a grown-up, go home. And that's the wonderful thing is that, that it's, it really plays like another beautiful film, uh, Cherry Tree Lane, uh, Asian you know, horror um, in, in the sense. But, but you're right, Fassbender should. It's like because he's a matcher, because he's a man, and of course he's right. He's defending the honour of his girl. He has every right to be there in, the, in, in this area. So do the others. Although, of course, they've all slept, sneaked in, haven't they? So uh, they're all actually, you know, doing something a bit naughty. Um, but you know, yes, is that the thing is, is this is the point at which you step away from the fight and you and you you swallow your pride, and of course he doesn't. But and we have those wonderful conflicting emotions, and I think it's so real and so true. And, and many, I mean, it's not a British film, but you know, the um, in Jeepers Creepers, where they're looking down, in oh yeah, the pit, the pipe, yeah, looking down the pipe, is going. There's no way you should go and climb <laughs> down the pipe. <laughs> exactly. The minute the minute he starts going down. Dread is already upon us as an audience because what the hell is going to be down there? 
and that that's the wonderful thing you know and it and it just captures the sort of nine ten year old in all of us about you know you know in that little way of let, let's go and explore that bit of wasteland around well i guess kids can't do that anymore can they you know let's go and explore let's go into the park or the trees or the forest or whatever let's go and have a look let's let's go and uh, ring on the door of the scary man next door you know none of that stuff you can do anymore but stuff that we all did as kids but i guess i guess what it's saying though is is that because we know we, people who, who are maybe a bit more cynical about the horror genre will will do will do the classic, well, I wouldn't have done that, you know. I mean, the obvious one is in every slasher film, mm. go into the house or do a walk into the pitch black forest because I've heard yeah. Morgan Russell. You guys split up. You guys go in the attic and we'll go in, in the cellar. Okay. So, so in a way, the exaggerated bad position to put yourself in actually actually reduces the lack of the dread, doesn't it? Because you, you're kind of, you're taking out the movie you're going, well, that's a ridiculous decision to take. I think you're right, because that's where the good writing has to come in. And that, that's the fundamental moment, actually, for, for horror writers, is that you've got to write that moment. You've got to write that moment about where they lose the mobile phones. You know, and, and we can't get a signal, you know, that, that awful moment. You've got to find a way of cheating that. And then you've got to make it congruent. You've got to make it real that they would stay there. So what you've got to do as a writer is, is make the stakes high. So therefore, you've got to make one of them infected, like in Cabin Fever. Um, You've got to make one of them injured is the usual sort of way, or, or, or you've got to go back because um, it's your brother or your sister or something like that. You've got to give a really good reason why they don't just go, ah, sod it, let's go on. <laughs> <laughs> now, now, Dread has got, yes. has got a, a complementary partner, which is the payoff of Dread, which mm. is then facing the terror, which is the third of your tropes. It is, and, and I'm going to use a nice little elision from Dread into Terror in you know, a real personal favour, which is uh, Jonathan Miller's uh, version of M.R. James' Whistle and I'll Come to You, uh, which is the one uh, from about 1960, whenever it was. Trying the one for Michael Horden. Um, and, you know, they remade this one with John Hurt. Um, 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 bless him. Oh, poor, sad loss there. Um, but... This was amazing because, I mean, M.R. James's stories are all about sort of dread and, and they never reveal the terror. Um, but in this movie, Jonathan Miller was a brand new director. Um, this is black and white. This is uh, part of a series on, on TV. I don't think um, I've got it here. It was television omnibus. That's right. Made in 68. Um, and these, were Christmas, uh, these are Christmas movies. These were the they were part of the Christmas series. That's right. Um, and of course, so he didn't even know the, the genre, because uh, particularly, but, but he, I think he created a masterpiece because it's this rather dotty old sort of old school teacher who goes on holidays in Norfolk every every summer, and and he's out there wandering the the beaches, and and he finds this old whistle which is you know a poem written in it in in a strange script which I'll come to you, and and it's another study of madness, and and we get a beautiful study of dread in this as it just very very slowly becomes more and more eccentric. And he starts to have these weird dreams in his hotel room. And and where the dread turns to horror is the most fantastic um, moment for me uh, in that he has a dream of what it is that is coming. So it's pure dread. And what you see is, is this sense of him running on a beach. And I think you hear and you don't see him. We have the camera runs. And it's we're just in there. We're just in that nightmare. And... And it's again slow motion, the kind of noises, everything is slowed up, everything is weird. And what you see, and I'm going to do spoiler alert, but you, you see this big black 
kind of rag, this huge seaweed or hessian rag, like a massive black sheet, coming towards him. Now, I've no idea how they did it. It's, it's vast as well. And it's suddenly approaching him. It's this thing, and it could be... <coughs> sorry, God knows what it is, but it, this is what the terror is. And it just floats and comes towards him like this sort of essence of darkness. And, and it, it's terrifying. It is. It's truly terrifying. And he wakes up absolutely petrified. Um, so that is the terror. That is the terror. It's the terror when you actually see the thing. You're in the moment. Yeah, I mean, and, and, and I think that's the... In, in Kill List, I think yes. they, 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 they give you the... They give, definitely deliver you on the unease. They don't, yeah. they, they don't fill you with dread because you, when you begin to reel that, that, that Maskell's character is yeah. making all kinds of wrong decisions for all yeah. the right reasons, but he's making the wrong decisions because he's not, he's not quite a full shilling after his, um, his war experiences and how he feels yep. life. Yeah, and then we get the the the, the, the big shift in the film. Yes, uh, exactly. It's it's when they go down him and um, Michael Smiley, and they're in those tunnels, and that's terror because they're being they're being uh, pursued, and suddenly that I'd say that's the the live terror moment. There they are being pursued by it. Yeah, because Michael Smiley dies in that moment, leaving <coughs> on his own, and mm. up until then. They're mm. just the gruesome twosome yes. doing assassinations, but they're yeah. they're always in control of their destiny. And then suddenly, and this is I think it's the, the the MP, isn't it? That comes up on the title screen. Yeah. And and all they're doing is watching a stately home. And as they're watching yeah. a stately home, a load of pagans and naked people come dancing yeah. around the fire. And it's well, like, what are we doing here? <laughs> well, the, yeah, the, and the pure terror is when he is captured by them and he is there and he's watching these naked pagans and he's made to do... Um, I mean, I don't want to spoil the ending of this one because it very much is a Wicker Man ending, you know, but, but when, he, when it's revealed, when, you know, when he's part of that pagan dance and when he, you know, what happens then, and when he, he realises that is pure terror, when, he, he's, when he's committed that act at the very end... You know, and we see that woman, and she's so freaky that the na the girl with the dark hair, you know, who who'd scratched the thing on the back of the mirror earlier, you know, who worked in HR. <laughs> yeah, it's so weird. Exactly, she is so well. Anyone in HR is a killer. We know this. We know this. They should all be. Um, another one, of course, would be the descent. Good. Oh, we we cannot ignore uh, Neil Marshall's descent. In, you know, when when the girl is right down there in all the midst of the blood, and the, and you actually see those horrible things. That is the pure terror. You know, it's it's as they say, it's horror's orgasm. It's it's you know, as it were, right in your face. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, moving moving on on with mm. your tropes is. Um, you, you've you've listed horror now. How does how do you differentiate between terror and horror? I think it's important um, to, to differentiate the two because terror, as I say, is very much in the moment. Terror is any of those say those slasher movies when you're going ah my god running around running around running around and it is chasing you with the chainsaw. But horror is a is retrospective. Horror is looking back upon oh my god that's what he did. Um, it's the horror of the horror. So basically, the, the, the Holocaust is the horror. The fact of discovering the camps is the horror. That Sally Hardesty in Texas Chainsaw Massacre um, goes into the house, like the fool she is, and goes in and sees all those chickens and those things in cages and all of those human bones on those armchairs. That's the horror, because it's, what the hell has happened here? What has happened? Um, you know, 
Mum and Dad is another good British horror. Do you know it? Yeah, yeah, no, very much so, yeah. Um, in that one, it's when the poor girl manages to, to escape from her room and she gets up and she discovers the other girl in the other room at the top. Um, the other live girl who's sort of trussed up with these horrible metal things who they're eating and keeping alive and obviously is always the product of incest or something dreadful and is obviously having incestuous relationships with dad. And it's just like that's the pure horror of what has happened to this girl. Uh, likewise, another one of that would be in Seven, which would be where, you, where they discover the, uh, you know, the guy who's been starved for a year. You know, that sudden shock of, oh, my God. He's still alive. That that is horror because it's you know it's just looking back and going oh my god, that's what he did. That's what he or it is capable of doing. Um, also, actually, sorry to go on. It's um, it's the reveal of the Wicker Man, which was my final choice there, um, because it's when we reveal the Wicker Man, and when they reveal to Edward Woodward Woodward, um, just what they're going to do to him. Um, and it's the understanding that the, uh, the horror is, oh, my God, this is what they do, and this is what they have been doing for years. And he will go, oh, Jesus Christ! Oh, Jesus Christ, no! Thought I'd do the voice for you there, Stuart. No, it's very good. And you know you know as well that... Uh, uh, well, you don't know that... that, that um, I, I was lucky enough to watch Wicker Man with Robin Hardy in, in ah. Walthamstow. We, we, my friends, I got a pop-up cinema. And... It was amazing to discover that, that that moment in the film, in the southern states of America, <coughs> isn't a horror moment at all. Wow. To them, that, oh, they read that film as there's the ultimate martyr. He didn't renounce God in the face of all this pagan pressure. He still believed, and therefore he's seen, uh -huh. as, it's seen as a martyrdom. Of course. Which yes. is amazing, because obviously if you believe you're going to heaven... Yeah, for that's believing, it. For believing in God, which I'm imagining that's the kind of people he's talking about. Wow. Um, the, yeah. <laughs> so this, this amazing, because obviously for as me as a non-believer, yeah. I'm going, well, why don't you just, just not believe in God anymore? And then you'd be fine. <laughs> yeah. Obviously, that's not, that's not what belief is about. Um, I, I know, I'm, I'm taking that theme. I mean, one of my most, uh, I think the, one of the most scary horrors is Martyrs, the, the French uh, the French horror film, in, in which, you know, uh, people are quite literally martyred, and that's terrible. And, of course, they're Ken Russell's Devils, too. Uh, but, yes, they're very interesting, those films, because that gets into a real perversion, uh, a, a human perversion rather than a, a godly one. You, you mentioned, in, in, in the book, you mentioned, you mentioned Hellraiser under horror as well, don't you? And... I do, indeed, and that would be my final trope, Mr Stewart. That would be my, my um, disgust. Um, I love Hellraiser. I, I heard there was a rumour Clive Barker was going to remake it, but it doesn't seem to have happened yet. I've had, uh, I've had somebody on the podcast talking about them pitching for it. Uh, there was a, there's been a umpteen different cycles. I think the latest one is the mm. actually Clive Barker is heading up the search for the reboot or whatever. Right. Uh, I hope I hope we don't get it because I, I, I do, do I do too because I mean it was it was a sort of a, a Laura de Machine returns but I have a lovely box here set here which I bought the one with the box I don't know if you have that one the box no no so you oh, like, what the the, the recent, was that how they presented the the Blu-ray reissue uh, not the Blu-ray it's the DVD but it's an actual physical box which I'm opening ah uh, I'm opening ah uh, uh, the box you came Kirsty Kirsty. 
Um, I love that movie. Um, I think I, I spoke to the, one of the producers about it uh, once, and um, you know, it's it's a wonderful odd curio of a movie in the sense that um, because they, the, the the father is and the daughter are sort of American or Canadian, the mother is English. It, it's shot in a North London house, um, and you have these weird mixtures of things. And obviously, these were. <clears throat> issues with trying to get a film made in 1985 and when it was was pretty damn difficult at those times um but i think what clive barker did amazingly he's the most fantastically talented writer just absolute genius and you know books of blood and, and dread and those movies made of his are superb um but he introduced this idea as we know of the snm zombies in it you know the the the, the, the hellraiser um the cenobites um but to my mind is like the way that they did of the the tearing apart of you know the body and this perverted thing of when they finally tear apart the the uh, the brother I've forgotten his name and 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 he's you know tied up with all of these chains you know uh, and on the the rack as it were and about to be torn apart and this horrible lesson you know Jesus Christ he goes and then he's you know pulled to pieces it's it's pure disgust um, it's a disgusting image. Um, horror does that very well within the gore area. We can think of any number, I'm sure, you know, uh, of, of disgusting moments. It can be done comedically with uh, Brain Dead, Peter Jackson, or it can be done just for sheer horror effects with, you know, the Saw franchise or many of them. But um, I think we go to horror to just sort of see um, uh, abjection. Um, and, and the abject is, you know, that which is of us but not of us. So basically your feces, your semen, your blood, your scabs, your things like that. Stuff that we don't like to look at and we don't like to think about, but we're strangely fascinated by. Um, because those things were part of our body, they were living within our body, and then they come out. And of course, again, that's horror. Horror always transgresses, always always looks at the you know the, the things that we don't want to look at. Um, I'm quite fascinated by um, body horror. really like body horror, Cronenberg and all of that. Uh, and again, it's that idea of transformation, like I, I think The Fly, Jeff Goldblum, um, <clears throat> you know, when he vomits all over his donuts in front of Gina Davis and goes, oh, that's disgusting. You know, <laughs> it's like because he, he's used to it by then and she's not. And it's like he's just used to vomiting all over his food uh, as if he came from Croydon. There I've offended people from Croydon. But the the, um, the, th the thing about, I guess, I guess um, I mean, Kill List has its moments of disgust. And um, oh. I'm just looking at the films. And Aidan Lake obviously does as well. But Eden Lake, in the sense of uh, when she has to crawl into that bin, you know, and, and just hide in all the absolute filth and crap, that's disgust. Mm. But then, but then when, uh, I guess, I guess um, <clears throat> the treatment of Fassbender in the end, that she has to witness and stuff, <clears throat> the, way think... the way he's tortured and stuff. Yeah, that's more terror, I think, more terror. Yeah, I mean, there's a couple of guys who wrote a whole thesis on disgust in about '94, and there is there's two kinds of disgust: there's physical disgust, and then there's moral disgust. Uh, and they they work down a whole scale. So uh, some people can't bear the idea of say interracial kissing or something like that, or they can't bear being touched by you know a person, or can't bear you know f you know weird sort of ideas like that. But then of course there's the physical things like um, ice cream and ketchup, or fish and chocolates that they're fairly horrible. <laughs> <laughs> now let's recap then so we've got five tropes we've covered generously with uh with with film examples and mm. examples within those films and yeah. they, they are unease dread terror horror and disgust now 
all horror films don't have all five, clearly. That's, that's correct. I mean, Disgust, you're not going to see in a ghost movie, a supernatural movie, you're not going to see Disgust. You're going to see that in a slasher movie. Um, you're going to see horror and terror in probably nearly all of them, I think. Um, um, and and unease and, and dread may be truncated down to a very short section of the movie. Um, but, you know, what, what the, the key to a good horror writing and directing is the modulation of all, certainly of, of the four. One of my favourites in recent years where I've, n I've, never, I've never watched the film for a long while mm. and just had to endure unease for probably 80% of it um, mm. was, was um, The Witch. Oh, yes. Which, 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 which goes well against the, the, the sort of vogue for um, hitting us hard with a big load of high, uh, you know, concept horror, gory, mm. violent, and then you know you're in a horror film and then letting us go on an adventure within that story universe. This, this really doesn't signpost exactly. I mean, it, it, obviously, you know it's about a witch, the title and the yeah. bits, but, but it's <clears throat> the unease that's generated has got, not, has got very little to do with the witch until it has everything to do with the witch, if that makes yes. sense. Yes, yes, well, I mean, it's, it's the crucible. It's, oh, the men of the crucible, you know, again, uh, and, and a retelling of the tale. And, uh, and, and I love, I, I think actually horror is probably going to, start sort of doing a lot more making period pieces now you know um that may be a way we, we have to go but i think it's even the, the fact that they sort of were talking up the fact that the, the idea of the forests are enchanted or cursed and have witches in them that already brings that into being that's kind of discourse and then the first shoot, shot you get as they leave the village and they go on the cart to the forest you know you get a slow closing in onto that forest there and that is enough to set it up and, and then again later on excuse me, the bad crops, you know, the crops are not growing. And of course, that wonderful thing when she does peekaboo with the baby, you know, the one, two, three, and then boom, gone. Um, no, I think it's beautifully modulated. And, and that's what's going to mean. Uh, other ones, uh, shout outs to and honourable mentions to um, The Awakening with Rebecca Hall. That was a fan. Yeah, I love that one. You know, really, really good movies that, that sort of keep modulating those sort of those those fears. I mean, it all comes out of the haunting, nineteen sixty three, the Robert Wise. You know, where in fact the haunting, you never see the thing, and yet the the, the moment when you're hearing the catechism told and you're seeing a piece of wallpaper lit at night and you're looking at this lion's mouth is terrifying. Brilliant stuff. Brilliant stuff. Well, look, let's remind people then. So, right in the horror movie by Mark Blake and Sarah Bailey. It's published mm -hmm. by Bloomsbury, and although it's not a new book, it's relatively new and out now. I'll put a, I'll put a link in the show notes. So, very to, to wrap up, then let's uh, let's address the other elements of your of your career path. So we've done mm -hmm. author. So let's talk about screenwriter director briefly. Do you want to? Have you got any projects you you can talk about? Yeah, I mean, I was I was a TV writer. I wrote a big TV thing many years ago, but but I've been struggling as many writers do to try and get stuff back on. So I. Turned to, uh, and I have many screenplays in development. Um, I did a play last summer called Area 52, which is what happens next to Area 51, and it did very well. And I'm, I'm, I've written the screenplay for that, and we're hoping to shoot that this summer. So um, that is a science fiction slash horror, and um, ideally at some point that will be out, uh, you know, once we've made it <laughs> in that way. Um, I'm, I'm sort of writing plays at the moment to try to get. You know, it's very hard in screenwriting to get anyone to read your work um, or to get, you know, get your stuff made. I've made some short films, 
but very hard. Um, I went to a meeting at the BFI, and basically all these producers said, you know, that. And so I, I've turned to playwriting. I've just finished a play full length, my first, which is a Who Done It, Agatha Christie, and it's got lots of scary elements, but it's also slightly comedic, and it's kind of, as one of my actors said, Spinal Tap meets Agatha Christie. Very nice. Um, and that is called Axe Man, and it is a modern. Uh, it is a modern whodunit. So it's, it's none of the old-fashioned sort of country house. Um, I'll give you the lowdown. It is a. It's a, it's set. Of, it's an old rock band, a kind of a, a Who Stones, Purple, Zeppelin type bunch of guys, and um, they're. It's set ten years ago, two thousand five, just when Napster was beginning to kill music. And this band are on their uppers, well, on their uppers, they're rich, uh, and they've all been in rehab, and they're all in millions of wives. Um, but, of course, they, they really just got to the point where the manager says, guys, you have to record an album, and you have to talk, otherwise that's it. And so he says, right, I'm going to lock you in a recording studio for the weekend. It's, a, it's an underground recording studio, and I'm going to lock you in here. I'm going to give the keys to one of you. I'm off. You do it. You make an album, and that's it, or we are screwed. Uh, and then people start to die. Wow. Yeah. So, Axeman, kids, you heard it here first. Just very, brief, very briefly, though, can you, can you talk about your experience of um, adapting your own stage play to scream? Well, I wrote Area 52 because it was a very simple idea. It's two soldiers trapped in a hangar. They don't know who they're guarding, what they're guarding, or for how long and why. And it's uh, Corporal uh, Theodore and uh, Captain Milo. And um, as, they, as they find themselves trapped in this, this hangar, it just begins with the corporal entering the hangar, these metal doors, and then locked in. He's just locked in with this other guy. And the whole of the play, which was an hour long, is when they figure out, A, what are those damn claw marks on the walls? B, are they on the outside or the inside? C, why is there blood on the floor? And then D, which one of us is the alien? They have all these problems to do. So as a screenplay, what I had to do is open it out. And I spent most of the autumn sort of writing a version that was very, very, you know, large. And you open it out and it's where they come out of Area 52 and they discover that what's going on is worse. Um, but in terms of funding, it's very hard. I had qu quite a big budget, so I wrote a big screenplay of it. And, and, and the producers just said, look, this will cost you $10 million. And can you rethink? So I went away and, you know, wrote till my head ble bleeded. <laughs> And and the the process there is that I just had to find ways of making it work with with limited locations. Um, I think I found the solution now. Um, it's very very internalised. Um, movies I really like are things like Pontypool or Cube. I don't know if you know them. Yeah 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 very much so yeah. Yeah well Pontypool is an interesting one about this idea that the the the, the horror is transmitted by the sound by the voices and all of that is shot completely more or less completely in a, in again a radio studio. Mm. Uh, and I think you can do movies in a single location. I think for the horror writers who, are, who may be listening is to try to think of simple locations. The hardest thing is is to lock them down. You know what I mean? You mean it's, not let them out? Yeah, because I mean that's the thing with that, that's why my guys in the recording studio it has to be underground. It has to be they have to be locked in. Cool. You know, and that's what you have to buy is that because otherwise if they're just in. A, in a, in a regular recording studio, and they and they can go off. They'll just go off and escape, <laughs> and take drugs and and have sex, and you know go and do what they want to do. So you've got to find a location that traps them. So so, um, but whereas in a screenplay, you have to try to find ways of owning it out as well. Yeah, that's that's the that's the challenge with all bloody contained mm. contained ones. I guess disappearance, Valis Creed, 
would be a fantastic example. Which I am teaching in two hours today. I guess the important thing is having three people. So, yeah. So you've got six dynamics, haven't you? Six relationships, I suppose, within three people, because you've got absolutely you've got two of each, as opposed to two people mm. is is very limited. Yeah, it's a perfect example of yeah. Keep your cast as small as you can. That's the answer. Yeah. But also, don't go too small. It's like if you go to two, you're gonna yeah. make, you're gonna make storytelling really hard. Go <laughs> beyond, go beyond three, and you yeah. suddenly have to give people things to do that's not dramatic. <laughs> Yeah, that's right. I mean, um, I mean, with my area fifty-two, it was two guys, but later on, you know, that you find out they're being watched, and so we introduce, you know, the two people. Oh yeah, no, I think that's what I say. That, that that brings in another element, doesn't it? And it has, yeah, you can you can work with. I mean, I'm doing it myself. I've got two people, mm -hmm. and then later on, you you bring in a third, and that helps to to propel the next part of what you need the story to do. In a sense. Yes. Which what Alice Creed is a perfect example. I mean, it's uh, so so superbly done. Well, look. Yep. Best, best of luck with Area 52. I hope that gets to, and we'll get you back on to talk about the making of that. That'd be lovely. Sure. And, you, and with you, so with, with Axeman, is that, is that going to be, is that going out to, to be produced at a theatre or is that? Yeah. Well, with the aim with Axeman, I mean, I just finished the first draft on that and I just got some, some feedback. And so um, <clears throat> I'm going to, I'm going to be re rewriting that. I'm looking to try and do. Um, some sort of scratch performances of it, but it is a full lecture, it's two hours, so I need to find, I really need to find a sort of theatres and actors where I can do that to, to shape the thing. It's a cast of six who are very quickly whittled down, um, but of course it's, it's, a, it's a singular location which makes it slightly easier. Um, you know, I, ideally I, I want to find somewhere, yes, places to put it on. Um, I, I hope you know, throughout the years to come, I will find some, you know, ways of, of actually putting it on and getting either a, a London run or something like that. Nice one. Well, look, best of luck with it. And thank you very much for giving us your time on the BritFlix podcast. Yeah, it's a pleasure, Stuart. Thank you. If you don't already subscribe to BritFlix, just sign up for free at iTunes and you'll get the next episode right after we launch it. Or follow at BritFlix on Twitter for links to the podcast to stream from the website directly. Thank you. Hey y'all, Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com. Discover South Carolina.